I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We are going to look at a scene that happened after the resurrection of Jesus with some of his disciples. And we're going to try to learn from this scene, this story, uh, some things that can really help us as Christians. Have you ever noticed that when you read the New Testament, you look in the book of Acts, for example, you see the New Testament Christians zealous and excited, like they knew who they were and they knew why they were there. And uh, they were so courageous in the face of persecution and difficulty. They were excited to share the message of Jesus. What was it that inspired their zeal so much? Was it that the Holy Spirit was active in certain ways uh, miraculously? Was it the apostles being there? Uh, now, you didn't always get to be around the apostles, though, and you didn't always get to see the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'll ask the question, what was so inspiring to them? Why were they so zealous? I have a theory that uh, part of the reason the early Christians were the way they were is that they knew the Old Testament scriptures better than we do. They were able to look back into the Old Testament and see images and pictures. They knew the prophets' writings. And because of that, they knew what God was trying to accomplish and what God was trying to do with his people. I know a lot of times as Christians, we, we will study the Old Testament to find Jesus there. In fact, Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but they are that which speak of me. And you do. You go back and you find images, shadows, uh, foreshadowing of the Christ. But has it ever dawned on us that as much as the Old Testament talked about Jesus, it also talked about his people? Uh, do we ever go there to find not just Messianic, but Christianic prophecy? Uh, I, I believe that thinking about the fact that the early Christians did not yet have the New Testament written, it was being written during their life, that the only scriptures they really could go and look at were the Old Testament scriptures. It helped them to see the poetic visions of the apostles and the world, uh, or the, of the prophets and the world that God was going to build. Uh, this passage here in Luke chapter 24 helps us understand the connection between the Old Testament scriptures and how our hearts can be zealous and excited about what we're doing uh, as Christians. I'll have more to say about that in a bit, but let's go ahead and get into this scene and see what happens here in this story. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 24, it says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Now, a couple of things that we want to get first is kind of set the scene. You see in verse 13 where it says, two of them. Them who? Well, we find out that it's two disciples, two men who'd been with Jesus for much of his life, much of his ministry at least, uh, had witnessed what had happened in Jerusalem, 
Uh, we're going to find out even that they had heard about the resurrection. In fact, it says in verse 13, it was on that very day. If you go back to verse 1, you find out that that was the first day of the week. When the women had gone to the tomb and found the tomb empty, when an angel had said to them, why are you seeking the living with the dead? When they got excited about the fact that he was announced alive, the, the women went and found the apostles, the disciples, and reported it to them. But Luke tells us in those verses that the words from the women seemed like nonsense to them. They just didn't believe it. So now, on this day, at the end of this day, these disciples are walking for seven miles, the trip from Jerusalem up on the mountain, down the hill to the west to Emmaus. When was the last time you walked seven miles? Maybe some of you do that every day. Um, but just going out and hiking and walking, these would have been, again, different kinds of terrain than we're used to. And while you're walking and talking after a long couple of days, a stranger begins to walk with you. Now, the Bible actually says that they don't recognize that it's Jesus, but he's eavesdropping on their conversation. Have you ever seen a TV show called uh, Undercover Boss? It's a pretty brilliant show. They take a CEO of a company or the owner of a company and they dress them up so nobody recognizes them. Uh, they put them in the warehouse or in the restaurant or whatever the business is. And he, undercover, gets to hear and see what the employees are doing. Is morale good? Is morale low? Are people doing what they're supposed to? Uh, at the end of the show, if you've ever watched it, usually you're crying, everybody's crying, and it's either really good news that the boss figures out that this worker is a great worker and rewards them with something wonderful, or they figure out that things aren't going very well in their company and, and the employees don't understand the mission, and there's usually some sadness there. Uh, as great a show as that is, I want you to notice that it was Jesus' idea. He was the very first undercover boss. By the way, how would that make you feel? If all of a sudden you realize that the stranger standing around in your conversation was actually the Lord, would that change the way that you talked? Now, get a little closer into this story. When the stranger says to them, hey, what are you guys talking about? What are these words that you're discussing on, on, as you walk. Uh, notice that at the end of verse 17, it says that they stopped walking. They stood still and they looked sad. Tears fill their eyes. They swallow hard. They kick the dirt. There's no joy in them. Even though the women had reported the resurrection, there's no happiness in these men. They're sad about the events concerning Jesus. So now notice verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Now, this is, I think, a sort of funny moment. In fact, I don't know that Cleopas would have thought it was funny later, looking back on it. But when this stranger says, What are you talking about? He essentially says, Are you the only person that doesn't know what's going on in the world? Have you been living under a rock? Of course, he had been for three days, but that's a different story. Um, but I wonder if he ever regretted the way he talked to Jesus here. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. I love his style. Not only that he's kind of cloaking his identity here to see what these disciples are going to say, but he gives them an opportunity to tell the story. He just says, 
What things? You tell me. You know, sometimes we think about the very first time the gospel was presented, and we think about Acts 2, that formal sermon that Peter preached when he stood up on the day of Pentecost. But in some ways, this right here in this story was the first time after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that two followers of Jesus told the story of Jesus to a stranger. So, how would you have done? What story would you tell? Let's listen to what they have to say and see if there's anything wrong with it. Verse um, 19, he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now, what do you think about that presentation of Jesus? Did they say anything wrong? Look th back through it. Verse 19, Jesus the Nazarene. True? True. Um, that he was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word. True? That's right. Now, maybe that's understated. He's more than a prophet for certain, but at least he was from God, speaking for God, and did mighty things. Uh, he did it in front of all the people. This wasn't done in a corner, as Peter would preach in Acts 2. Uh, is it true in verse 20 that the chief priests, the rulers, delivered him over to the sentence of death and crucified him? That's true. And, and you know, when they say there in verse 21 that they were hoping that it was him who was going to redeem Israel, some people might think, well, they had that wrong. No, the, the, the prophets said that's exactly what he was going to do. He was going to redeem Israel. Now, they didn't understand what that meant or maybe who Israel was. And those are things the New Testament will clear up as the teaching goes on. But it also points out that they tell him about the empty tomb. They tell this stranger that the women went to the tomb and an angel said that he was alive and others went and confirmed that the body was gone. And yet, we know that they're not joyful. There's something about their countenance that's still downcast. This is not a happy story that they're telling. Maybe that's why Jesus or the stranger reacts the way that he does. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now, remember, they still don't know that it's Jesus. This is still a stranger to them. But can you imagine the looks on their faces when this stranger says, You're foolish, and you have hard hearts or slow hearts. You don't believe what the prophet said. Do you think they were offended? Have you ever had somebody that you were telling the Bible story to come at you like that and say, you don't know anything about the Bible and you don't even believe what's written in it? Kind of an offensive thing to say. So as they take a step back and they wonder what this guy is saying to them, 
this stranger does something interesting. Now, sometimes here at home when I preach, um, I tell people that when I get to heaven, one of the things I want to do is I want to go rent um, you know, DVDs or whatever it is they got up there to watch scenes from the past. Have you ever wished you could just go back in time and see certain things? Uh, the flood, David and Goliath, like great Bible stories. What did it really look like? What was it like to hear and to see those things? Uh, you know, if, if you were to ask me if I could go back in history and hear one sermon that was ever preached, one Bible study that was ever given, it might be the next verse in your Bible. Look at verse 27 and think about the power of this verse. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Can you imagine that? This stranger starts in Genesis, and of course it is Jesus, but they don't know that. And as he tells through the story of the Bible from the very beginning, he says, here's the Messiah, here's the Messiah, look, here's the Messiah. Do you think they'd missed some things? Do you think we've missed some things? Uh, I wish that I could have been on that seven mile hike. I wonder what it was like for them. Well, we find out as the story goes on in verse 28. And they approached the village where they had been going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Again, I like Jesus' style. They're getting close to their home, and this stranger says, Hey, it was nice meeting you all. Like, I'm going to move on. You know, uh, he's acting like he's going farther. That's important. Remember, Jesus is a stranger here. He's cloaked his identity. Uh, he's rebuked them for not believing the prophets, but he's preached to them for some amount of time, and now he's acting like he's going farther. What's he doing? Is this a test? Perhaps. You know, under the old law, if you were a Jew, you were obliged to take in some stranger who needed a place of lodging. You were supposed to be hospitable, but not just the old law. Even Jesus had taught his disciples that if they met somebody who knew something about the Messiah, that they were to give him a cup of cold water in his name, that they were to take care of one another. So maybe he's testing their hospitality. But have you ever heard preaching so good that you just didn't want it to stop? I know that doesn't happen very often, but these men are so enamored with what this stranger is telling them that they say, please come inside, tell us more. Now watch what happens next when they get in the house. Verse 30, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Now, folks, this is cruel, isn't it? I mean, they sit down, they begin to share a meal together. He blesses the bread and something about this moment, Jesus decides to allow them to see that it's him. Their eyes are opened and there he is. Do you suppose they lunged at him to hug him or or, or, or were so excited that this was their master and he's finally with them. And yet in that moment, he vanishes from their sight. 
I have to tell you, I don't know what that means. Did he jump up and run out into the darkness? Did he vaporize? I think part of what the Bible is telling us about the, the resurrected Christ is that he was sown in weakness and raised in power, that there was something different about his resurrected body. It was a body of glory, Philippians chapter 3 would say. It's also a body that would eat and drink. In a few, he was, number one, he was sharing a meal here, but in a few moments you'll see that he's actually going to eat food. They could touch his flesh. Yet if he wanted to be here, he could be here. If he wanted to be there, he could be there. There was something different about him. He wasn't an apparition or a vapor like um, some of the false teachings that would come about in the first couple centuries. Maybe that's why this is here. Be that as it may. Jesus is gone from the room. You have two disciples sitting in the room together, and I want you to hear their testimony. Listen to what they say to each other in verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was explaining the scriptures to us, while he was speaking to us on the road? Now, what powerful testimony this is about the preaching of the gospel. I want you to notice they, their hearts weren't burning within them because they knew who the teacher was. To them, the teacher was a stranger. The teacher was somebody that even had insulted them. The teacher was somebody that moments before this, they thought was, was the only person living in Jerusalem that didn't know what was going on. And yet because he took the scripture and showed them the scripture, their hearts became aflame. Their hearts burned within them. In fact, there's something going on in this text that I want you to notice. Do you see in verse 32, my version, the New American Standard says that he was explaining the scriptures. Your version might even say he was opening the scriptures to them. Go back up one verse to verse 31. That's the same word that's, that's used when it says their eyes were opened. There's something going on in this text that connects the opening of the scriptures to the opening of the eyes. And not just the opening of the eyes and the scriptures. This word is used one more time in verse 45. Look at verse 45 in our text. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This word for opened is used eight times in the New Testament. Three of them are right here. They opened their eyes, he opened the scriptures, and he opened their hearts. And Christian, did you know that's what preaching is? When we learn the scripture, and we can learn to show people things that from ancient times, ancient words, reveal to us who our Savior is, who we are, perhaps it can ignite in us the same kind of passion and zeal. Now, I asked you earlier, when was the last time you walked seven miles? Do you think these guys are tired? It's been a long couple of days. It was a long walk down the mountain. But they're excited now. Look what it says they do next. They jump up and they, it sounds like to me, they run seven miles back up the mountain of Jerusalem. Uh, it says there in verse 33, they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven. And those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They begin to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things 
Jesus Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See My hands and My feet, that it is I Myself. Touch Me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. These men jump up from their seats. They run back to Jerusalem. They get to where the apostles are and the other disciples, and they're talking over each other. This is what happened. We saw him in the breaking of bread. And right in that moment, again, I love Jesus' style, he just appears in their midst. You know, again, was he a quarter mile ahead of them all the way on that trip up to Jerusalem, or did he appear there and appear with them? That's what it sounds like to me. And yet, he says, I'm not a spirit. Feel my flesh. Touch me. He's going to ask for food in the next couple of verses, and they eat together. What a day. What a night. Why did Jesus do this with them? Why have a conversation as a stranger with disciples and cause their hearts to burn by sharing the Scripture? What was so valuable about this? Let's go on to verse 44. Look at verse 44. Now he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Now I want you to notice, earlier in this story, Jesus rebuked them for not believing what the prophets said. Now he's saying to them, I told you that everything had to be fulfilled about me in the prophets and the Psalms and the writings. All of the Old Testament had to be fulfilled in me. And then he began to teach them and help them open their minds to understand those Old Testament scriptures. Three things, actually, that he wanted them to understand. Look at verse 46. He said to them, thus it is written. Now I'm going to do a little test here with us. And I want to show you that there's something about this next couple of verses that's kind of challenging to us Christians. I think you'll do well in the first part of the test, but it gets a little bit harder. Notice what he says was written in the Old Testament. Number one, that the Christ would suffer. Can you think of a place? A place in the Old Testament where it's specifically mentioned that the Christ would suffer. Oh yeah, we know those passages. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Those are the ones we read at the Lord's table because we know that the Scripture said this Christ would suffer. That one's not so hard. But what about this next one? And that He would rise again from the dead on the third day. Can you think of a passage like that? That's not as easy, is it? You know, maybe the one that you would think of wouldn't be a, a direct statement. It doesn't come right out and say he will be in the grave for three days and then he'll rise from the dead. But you'll remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the, of the great fish for three days. And Jesus, in fact, himself would say, no sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Jesus connected the resurrection and the three days to that story in the Old Testament. And some people had missed it. But do you think that was all there was? Could there be others that maybe we've missed? Back in the book of Genesis, there was a man named Abram, Abraham. 
He was promised a son. That son of promise was finally born. And then one day God came to him and said, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on the hills of Moriah. Moriah, where eventually Solomon would build the temple. Jerusalem, where eventually Jesus would die. Do you remember in the Old Testament how long the journey was from where Abraham lived to Mount Moriah? Three days. Three-day journey. So here's what you have for three days. This father, in his mind, was walking to the place where his son would die. In fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews that what he was thinking in his mind is that God would raise him from the dead. So there's a story. Maybe you might think of places like Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, for whatever reason, the Bible tells us that they took a three-day journey into the wilderness. And then when they got three days into the journey, they came to some water that was bitter. Do you remember that place? They called it Mara. Later, Naomi in the book of Ruth would say, call me Mara because I'm bitter. But here, you got three days and bitter water. I don't know if there's anything to this. But death is bitter. But do you remember what happened at Mara? God had them take a tree. Does anything good happen with trees? And they, he has them throw that tree into the bitter water. And that which is bitter was finally made sweet by the tree that they threw into the water. Do you think there's not imagery there? A tree that could make something bitter like death be sweet because of resurrection. There might be a lot of things like this. I need to get better about it. To know my Old Testament. But that's not just all that Jesus said was written. That the Christ would suffer, that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. But look at verse 47. This is more about us than it is about Jesus. It says, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Can you think of those passages? Where the passages in the Old Testament where it was written that we would tell the story, that we would be the messengers, that repentance of sin would be proclaimed everywhere. It's there. Do you suppose that if we could be New Testament Christians like they were, I understand we try to match our doctrine to their doctrine. We try to organize our congregations the way they organized theirs. We try to be New Testament Christians by keeping all the things that we see as the pattern. But do we really imitate the first century Christians with our zeal? Do we really find the motivation that they found in the prophets? We need to. Let me show you a passage that helps confirm that this is the right thing to do with the Old Testament. Turn quickly to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We find out at the beginning of 2 Peter that he's getting older and he's, he's, his, the time of his departure is getting close. Uh, he knows that he doesn't have long for the world. So 2 Peter is kind of like gathering around the deathbed of an uncle or a grandfather who wants to tell you what's most important. Now, here's one of the things he says. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This I know, beloved, 
Uh, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. A couple of things about that. Notice, he calls them beloved. I've never met all of you. Uh, you've only known me over a screen, and I don't know that I've ever seen any of your faces, maybe a couple. Uh, but I'll say that you're beloved. We're brothers. Another thing that he says is that they had sincere minds. I believe that about you. But he also said that he wanted to stir up the sincere minds of the people that he loved. I would like to do that. Notice what he tells us to do here. You should, verse 2, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You know, if I hadn't brought this verse up, and if I would have stood up and said something like, you know, the first thing you need to do is listen to the Old Testament, and the second thing you need to do is listen to the commandment of Jesus, somebody would have said, you've got that out of order. No, commandment of Jesus first. But look at the verse again. He wants us to listen to what the prophet said, and that, that will help us understand what the commandment singular is of the Lord given by the apostles. I do a series in a gospel meeting that I call Old Testament Images of New Covenant People, or Finding Our Purpose from Our Past. It's meant to ignite zeal in Christians by looking at the Old Testament. I used to do that series very wrong. What I would do is I'd show up at a church and I'd just start preaching out of the Old Testament, trying to help them see the Lord and see themselves. I actually did a meeting one time in a place, I won't say where, and a couple of sermons into that meeting, there was a boycott. Uh, an older gentleman said, I'm not coming anymore to this meeting, and he got a couple of other people to not come, and they actually used the word, they're going to boycott the meeting, and one of the elders found out about it and told me, and he said, hey, you want to go meet this guy? And talk with him and I said not really uh, but we did good elder we got to his house and I kid you not he was actually out back at the woodshed I, I went out to the woodshed with the man and when I got there he kind of hung his head and, and the elder said brother uh, we hear you're boycotting the meeting and he said that's right and uh, the elder said why are you boycotting the meeting and he looked at me and he pointed his finger and he said it's just too much Old Testament we're not Old Testament people. We're New Testament people. I wasn't upset at the man. I hadn't done my job. In fact, it used to be that I didn't preach this lesson before those lessons. I didn't prove my case. I didn't show Christians that the New Testament told them to go back and learn and see themselves and find the Lord and that their hearts could burn because of that. By the way, that man eventually came back and everything went fine. But this lesson was one that I began to put in at the beginning of that series. Let's finish with this. Did you notice that the verse 1 said it was the second letter that he wrote something like this? Go back to 1 Peter 1. Let me show you the first time that he said this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter said, As to this salvation... Now, before we read any further... Notice, what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1 is our salvation. That's what he's discussing. 
You want a, a beautiful picture of our salvation? Look at the first nine verses of this chapter. We're, we're born again people with living hope, with the protection of God. It's a beautiful passage, which by the way is based upon an Old Testament image. If you look at the end of chapter one, he quotes Isaiah there in verse 24. And all of us being born again is from that image of the prophets. That's another lesson entirely. But listen to what he says about our salvation in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know what I think verses 10 through 12 are? It's a parenthetical in the chapter, but it's actually kind of a sales pitch about our salvation. But I want you to notice how he says what he says. He says, as to your salvation, the prophets prophesied of, what's the word in your Bible? What did they prophesy of? The grace that would come to us. Now, if I took this book and I asked most people, hey, where can I read about grace in this book? In the Old or the New Testament, most people would say, well, grace is in the New. If I got more specific and I said, where in this book can I find out about the grace that would come to us in Christ? Nearly everyone would say, you'll find it in the new. Read the verse again. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. You want to know about God's grace as a Christian? Learn the prophets. 2 Peter chapter 3, go, remember what the prophet said. I don't like that word remember because what it implies is we have to first know it. You can't remember it if you don't know it. And I don't know the prophets well enough to remember them. I've not gone and searched carefully so that my heart would be on fire about who we are as Christians. Something else that he says here, he says that when they were receiving the messages about our grace, they made careful searches and inquiries. They were curious about this. They asked God for more information. Why don't we do that? Ah. I'll tell you something, you should be glad that I wasn't a prophet in the Old Testament because when it says there in verse 12 that it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves but a future generation, that it wasn't even going to be for them, that they were going to die, bleed out in the dirt without ever having received these promises, they were preaching it for people later, I probably would have quit. I'll tell you something. I'm going to illustrate this. And uh, women, I'll use you as, uh, as the illustration. You ever had a time where you were going to have people over to your home? You wanted to serve them a great meal. So you thought about it. You prepared it. You worked hard. You cut your fingers while you chopped vegetables. And the day came for you to feed all of this people that came around your table. And you put out the spread. And everyone looked at it. And somebody said, you know, this doesn't look very good to me. It's not my style. It's not my type. Could you make me a sandwich? Now, if it's your kids that say it, you slap them in the head and you say, you're going to eat it and you're going to like it. But what would it do if somebody talked like that about all of your effort? Could I tell you that I hope 
I hope God doesn't allow the prophets of old to hear what some Christians say about the Old Testament. How many times have you heard Christians say, oh, that's not my style. I don't like those stories. The Old Testament is too hard. It's too harsh. And here you have Peter saying, no, it speaks of your grace. They were enamored with the idea. They couldn't get enough of the images God was giving. We need to find our joy and our zeal from these writings. Have you ever wondered why Peter says what he says at the end of verse 12? Things into which angels long to look. Peter just told us about two of the greatest beings that have ever existed in the universe, the angels of God and the prophets of old. And do you know what the prophets of old and the angels of God have in common? They both wanted to know about what we have in Jesus Christ. Shouldn't we want to know more? If I ever get a chance to preach for you again, perhaps I'll do some more sermons from that series I talked about. Finding images in the Old Testament about who we are in the New. I believe I might have preached some of them in the past for you. Thanks for your attention. I hope your hearts will be on fire for the Lord because of these things. Thank you. Afternoon. That was a great message, wasn't it? Uh, it really made me think a lot. A lot, a lot of points in there that caused me to reflect. And it kind of tied in a little bit with what Brian did when he did the, when he did, when he officiated over the uh, communion. And he asked those of us who were Christians to kind of think back to that time when we were baptized and the feeling that we had. You know, that's those, those, I, don't, I don't know if you knew what he was going to say, Brian, but they, they, they tied in really, 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 really well. Um, if any of you uh, have not been baptized, that kind of gives you a prelude of, of what you're in store for if you ever decide to, to uh, take up the call and become baptized. This is an opportunity, we want to give you an opportunity now, if you've heard something from the message today that inspires you to want to become baptized, you have that opportunity right now. You've heard the word, if you believe it, and it's inspired you to, inspired you to, uh, uh, to ask for forgiveness of your sins and want to be baptized, this is your opportunity right, right now. Um, There's actually someone who wants to be baptized from the Spanish congregation. We're going to take a few moments after the message to, uh, to baptize someone. Uh, so it's a great day. Uh, the, all the things that have, have occurred in terms of Brian's message over the, uh, over the communion, uh, Andy's message today, and then we're actually going to culminate that with, with the baptism this morning. Um, Brother Asanga has, has, has preached the message. That person has believed it. They've repented of their sins. They're going to take this opportunity to confess of their sins and be baptized. And then we're going to encourage them to live faithfully uh, from that point forward. I will never be the same again. I can never return. I've closed the door. I will walk the path. I'll run the race, and I will never be the same again. No, I will never be the same.